0: Listen to The Amendment Now, wherever you get your podcasts. Before we get started with today's episode, here's a quick message about a podcast from Ozzy Take On America. Are all black men progressive? Are all Asian American millennials politically engaged? This special audio series brings together people of the same race or ethnic background in order to shine a spotlight on their diversity and cut through the cultural stereotypes. Explore the range of opinions among groups of people who are often presumed to vote as a block. Get an inside look into the conversations these communities are having among themselves. Based on the groundbreaking TV show, Take on America with Ozzie is now available as a podcast. Check it out. Take on America, the podcast, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
1: I'm Mary Harris. I'm the host of Slate's new daily news podcast, What Next?, and I have a question for you. Do you ever get a push notification or a news alert on Twitter and think, no, stop the news? I want to get off. Then what next is the podcast for you? Each afternoon, we're going to break down that headline you've seen your friends retweeting all day and tell you what matters, what doesn't, and what next. Just look for what next on Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. See you there.
0: Welcome back to Women Belong in the House.
2: You see, while our mothers and grandmothers were often powerless to change their circumstances, today, we as women have all the power we need to determine the outcome of this election.
0: I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co-founder of Wonder Media Network. A record number of women are running for office this year. We're telling their stories. We're also talking with experts about why there are so few women in office to begin with, and how Congress could change if it looked more like the people it represents. In the past few episodes, we covered women who are turning the historic stereotype of feminine weakness on its head. Today, we're going to talk to a woman who's flipping the script in a different way. Typically, the most vocal parts of the Christian community are associated with the Republican Party. But the candidate we're bringing you today— says her values as a Democrat stem from her Christian faith. She's also running as a Democratic challenger in the deep red state of Alabama. The U.S. has a fascinating history when it comes to the relationship between church and state. The country was founded on the idea that government should be divorced from religion. Yet every time we say the Pledge of Allegiance, we're reminded that this is one nation under God. Politicians often bless America, and campaigns are riddled with broad allusions to religious devotion.
1: Thank you. Good night. And God bless America.
0: Thank you all.
3: God bless you. And God bless the United States of America.
1: Thank you. God bless you.
2: And God bless America. Thank you. God bless you. And God bless these United States of America.
0: This election, some candidates are speaking more freely about religion. It's part of a general movement valuing more authenticity. History is also about to be made. Rashida Tlaib of Michigan and Ilhan Omar of Minnesota are likely to be the first Muslim women in Congress. Here's Amanda Hunter. She's the communications director for the Barbara Lee Family Foundation.
1: It's sort of another example with so many candidates who are using that to kind of present a 360-degree view of them. So maybe in the past, And certainly years ago, candidates were encouraged to walk a very fine line with religion, acknowledge it, not talk about it too much. But like so many other things, people, if that's important to them, they're really talking about it more frankly and more freely than we may have seen 10 or 15 years ago.
0: That brings us to today's featured candidate.
3: I am Tabitha Eisner. I am the Democratic nominee for Congress in Alabama's
0: second congressional district. Tabitha was born in 1981, 65 years after the first woman, Jeanette Rankin, was elected to Congress, and 61 years after women first won the right to vote.
3: My parents got divorced when I was four. So my mom moved us back to the small town in central Illinois where she had grown up and where her parents still lived. My mom hadn't worked in the 10 years that she'd been married. And she got married right out of college. So she really didn't have much work experience. And it was really hard for her to find employment. So we were living rough at the bottom of things, even though, you know, she had done what most of society would say was all the right things, going to college and getting married and staying home to be a good mom to her children. So we lived in this little white square house that was next door to a power plant and across the street from the train tracks. Meanwhile, my grandparents, my mother's parents, lived in a mansion. It was a huge white house at the top of a big hill on Park Place Avenue because my grandfather was the president of the local university. And so I knew from a young age that downward mobility was a reality and that just because your parents had made it didn't mean that you would. And I think that really shaped a lot about my life experience, that sense of we're all just one divorce away from needing social programs and needing the help of others to get back on our feet.
0: The church played a big role in Tabitha's life from a young age. She says she learned early on about heeding calls to move around in order to serve a higher purpose.
3: My mom got a lot of help from her father, and I think that's a really important part of the story. It's not a pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstrap story. It's really a lots of people helped and gave her opportunities along the way, and mostly because she knew people. When I was a little bit older, I guess sixth grade, my mom felt called to work for the church. And she wasn't a minister or anything, but she felt like she needed to do something significant to dedicate her life to service. So she was a fundraiser. She did alumni development work for the local college where my grandfather had gotten her a job. She had kind of risen up through the ranks of that enough that she was pretty good at doing planned giving, that kind of thing. So she started working for the National Church Headquarters in Indianapolis doing that kind of work. So again, I learned about following your call and that sometimes you have to kind of uproot everything to move on to where you feel like you're called to work. So we moved then, and then I went to college in St. Louis. I minored in religious studies, but I did a degree in philosophy, neuroscience, and psychology. So, really looking at the mind brain connection and how language and culture affect the way that we think and view the world. And I was really fascinated by those kind of cultural differences and how differently people view the world, even when they live close to one another. And that continued to be a topic of study for me throughout.
0: In 2004, during the George Bush-John Kerry election, Tabitha was living in St. Louis. She had a full-time job at a refugee settlement agency. In her free time, she worked on the America Coming Together campaign, a progressive political action group that works to get out the vote. The disconnect between her political party and her faith became apparent, pushing her to continue on to divinity school. One
3: evening sitting around with friends, they said to me, well, you know, Tabitha, we could win this election if it weren't for the Christians. And it just, it was like a stake through the heart, like, oh, like, but y'all know me and you know how seriously I take my religious commitments and that I'm thinking about going to seminary. How can you say that? And they were like, yeah, but you're not a real Christian. You know what we mean. And it broke my heart because I did know what they meant. I knew what they were talking about as Christianity. And that to me was so devastating to know that that version of Christianity had become the norm. And that what I understood to be my religious tradition was considered a fringe element, not the norm, not what people thought of when they thought of Christianity. And that was devastating. And for me, that kind of was the final nail in the coffin of making the decision to go and get a degree in public policy and a degree in divinity. And I, Went to graduate school in Chicago. So I moved around some more. Then I married my husband, who is also a pastor. So he and I met in seminary in Chicago and decided that he would do congregational ministry and I would do kind of a public ministry. I did a dual degree program at the University of Chicago with a Master of Divinity and a Master of Public Policy. So I worked more in the public policy field. And my husband served churches, so that then moved us to Lexington, Kentucky, and Minneapolis, Minnesota, then finally to
0: Montgomery, Alabama, which is where we hope to stay. Tabitha shares her drive to help others with her mother, but that doesn't mean her childhood was politics-focused.
3: My mom did not talk at all to us about politics. We I think vaguely thought that we were Republican. I think from what little that I heard kind of adults talking about on occasion, but I really didn't know very much about politics and that didn't seem like a a regular conversation topic. My mom has never been particularly politically active. She votes, has always been a voter, but never got involved, never did protesting, that sort of thing. So her very first active activism was that I took her with me to the Women's March in DC. We are very close and share the same sense of the call to service being the overarching narrative of our lives and wanting to make sure that at all times we are serving our community and loving our neighbor in all our words and deeds we didn't discuss in advance but we both showed up in like black shirts that had like love your neighbor type messages on the front and we were just adorable little twins heading out to do that together and it was it was a wonderful wonderful time to spend with her at a time when i think otherwise i'd have been pretty sad
0: The church doesn't necessarily spring to mind as the most obvious place for a woman to become a leader. But for Tabitha, it's where she learned to take charge. So the church
3: was always, for me, the place where I was most encouraged to be a leader. And I know that's not everybody's experience of church. I grew up in a more progressive church than many. But my leadership was always welcome and was encouraged. So I have always felt like that idea that you would step forward and serve by being in a leadership role. That's been a positive part of my church experience. And I think later on, I recognized that it was not something that other traditions were as comfortable with, but it's never been my style to be dissuaded by other people's discouragement. I think I have enough of a stubborn streak and a desire to to challenge the status quo that it's been more of a motivation than a discouragement in my getting involved, both in religious leadership and in political leadership.
0: Tabitha says the two are really quite similar. When you're a minister for a congregation,
3: your task is to figure out how to build community among people who are fundamentally broken. We talk about sinfulness in the church. You know, we are sinners. We're not going to be able to escape that. We're going to treat each other poorly sometimes. We're going to be unkind Some are going to give more than others do, and things aren't going to be fair in the community all the time. And how do you create community nonetheless and help people to love each other despite their differences and find ways to work together towards some commonly shared goals? And the task of public policy is really the same, just on a grander scale. We're trying to figure out how do we create a society amongst people who don't always agree, often don't agree, people who mess up. They're sinners. They get addicted. They commit crimes. They cheat. They steal. Nonetheless, we have to find a way as a society to stay together. We can't just get rid of people because they're not playing the way we'd like them to play. We're stuck with each other. So, how do we create justice, but also grace? How do we keep people safe, but also welcome people back into the community and give them an opportunity for reconciliation and redemption and second chances? So I see them as very similar projects and always have. I'm a Democrat because I'm a Christian. It's not that I just happen to be both. I'm a Democrat because the Bible tells me that we're supposed to feed the hungry and care for the sick and welcome the stranger and liberate the captive. And to me, that means we have to fully fund SNAP so that we can feed the hungry and we have to figure out a solution to healthcare because we're obligated to care for the sick and we need humane and kind immigration policies because we're obligated to welcome the stranger and we've got to do criminal justice reform because we're called to liberate the captive. So for me, they're so intertwined. And I haven't felt unwelcome in the Democratic Party, but I have felt like it's a gap in the Democratic platform. There's an interpretation of the separation of church and state that seems to say you shouldn't be able to talk about religion in any kind of public setting and that your politics should never be connected to your faith. And that to me is just silly. All of us have our political views because of core values that we hold. And it doesn't matter whether those core values come from the Bible or from uh, Jewish texts or Muslim texts or from Harry Potter, It doesn't matter where they come from. The point is that we all have deeply held core values that inform our politics. And I think it has not served the Democratic Party well that they have been pushing away people who speak about
0: their religious motivations. Tabitha's running in Alabama. The people she's speaking to are likely more open to her religious perspective than perhaps people in other parts of the country. Holdups may instead come more from Tabitha's party affiliation. Overwhelmingly, people vote for candidates who represent the party they identify with. Here's Kathleen Dolan. Kathleen's a professor and the chair of the political science department at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. People support the candidates
2: of their political party overwhelmingly. If you listened back or if you, you know look back to when Hillary Clinton lost the presidential election, there was always that first
0: reaction. Well, women were against her. Well, women didn't vote for her. Well, she lost white women and all those sorts of things. There's no reason that we should believe that women voters are the answer to electing women candidates. Because there's just not that connection. It's really about political party. Tabitha surprised some people on the campaign trail with her combination of faith and political party. It's created common ground for some policy-related conversations. I think one of my favorite
3: stories is I was at an event in Enterprise, Alabama. It was mostly Republicans. It was held by the Enterprise Chamber of Commerce. And I got up and spoke. You know, mentioned that I was a Democrat and heard literal gasps around the room. It was unexpected that there would be a Democrat in the room. After the event, a woman came up to me and she said, did I hear you correctly that you're a pastor's wife? And I said, yeah, I'm, I am. My husband has a congregation in Montgomery. And she said, but you're a Democrat. How do you reconcile your Christian faith with the Democratic Party platform? And I, I told her, I'm a Democrat because I'm a Christian. I believe that we're called to feed the hungry and care for the sick and welcome the stranger and liberate the captive. And here are the policies that correspond with those things. And she whispered to me, but what about the gays? And I resisted my urge to laugh out loud. And I said to her, my church is open and welcoming to the LGBT community because it's not our job to judge people. Judgment belongs to the Lord. It's our job to love people. And she looked at me with wide eyes and said, that is so Christ-like. And I'm not sure if she was horrified or delighted that it was Christ-like, but she was definitely experiencing something for the first time. And I think forced in that moment to reconsider the assumptions that she had made We ended up talking and she told me about the homeless shelter that she runs and the soup kitchen that she runs and how proud she is that they are feeding people without having requirements. There's no interview process to be worthy of food. They just feed the people who are hungry. And I told her I thought that was brilliant
0: and exactly how SNAP should be run. SNAP stands for the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. It provides benefits to low-income individuals and families. It used to be called the food stamp program. When we talk about politics, religion, and women, it's impossible to ignore abortion. Tabitha has her answer ready. Yes, I get asked that question at least five times a day, getting
3: real good at answering it. So what I tell people is that every life is sacred. That's a core part of my Christian tradition. No life is less sacred than another. They are all sacred. What I want is policies that will save as many lives as possible. And when I think about um, Alabama's extraordinarily high infant mortality rate and maternal mortality rates, it's just as important to me that we lower those as it is that we lower the incidence of abortion. And so I look for policies that will save lives on the whole. And I think the best way to reduce the incidence of abortion, reduce the infant mortality rate, and reduce the maternal mortality rate is to provide comprehensive sex education, to provide free and low cost contraception, to provide free and low cost prenatal care so that mamas who want to have those babies are getting the kind of care they need to make sure that child is healthy. And we need affordable childcare. We need to make it easier to raise a family here because I think a lot of women would not choose abortion if they felt like they could give that child a good life. And so it's our obligation as Christians to make sure that mamas who wanna keep their babies can keep their babies and know that they'll give them a quality of life and to make sure that women aren't getting pregnant who aren't ready to be pregnant. I wanna focus on those things rather than on a policy that will decrease the abortion rate but increase the infant mortality rate or the maternal mortality rate. That's not a good solution to the problem of
2: abortion.
0: A quick aside. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Since I started Wonder Media Network, I've really come to realize how much I didn't learn in school about the role of women in American history. Luckily, there are lots of books out there that can help fill the gaps. I listen on Audible. Whether you wanna stay up to date with the latest political must-reads, or you wanna escape politics altogether, Audible has an unmatched selection of audiobooks and original content to peruse. I'm currently switching off between The Woman's Hour and Crazy Rich Asians. Sometimes you need a little of both. You can get a free audiobook of your choosing if you go to audibletrial.com slash women belong in the house. Here's more on Alabama's second district and the most important issues communities are facing there. My district is 10,000 square miles, so that's bigger than the state of Maryland, so it's
3: pretty rural, lots of small towns, very few towns that have more than 10,000 people. So Montgomery and Dothan are the two biggest towns. There's maybe one or two others that pass the 10,000 person mark. It's about 66% Caucasian and 32% African-American and 2% Hispanic. Our major industries are farming. Uh, We do cotton, soybeans, and peanuts here. Uh, We like to describe ourselves as the peanut capital of the world. We also do a lot of auto manufacturing and auto parts, really a, a mixture of those kind of small town industries. What I love about it here is that the people here are fiercely loyal to one another and joyful. I think there's a real... A real love of neighbor, a real sense of all the things that we have to be grateful for. So even while people are living in some pretty serious poverty, people are grateful. They feel blessed. I think there's a lot of strength in that, a lot of perseverance that we can build on and use to grow our area. We have several school districts in the district that are failing and really struggling to provide even a basic education to students, and that includes Montgomery Public Schools, which is where my son is enrolled in the public school system. We also need uh, community colleges and trade schools to provide people graduated from high school with the skills they need to be immediately employable because a pretty small percentage of the population here will go on to college. Healthcare is a huge issue. It's a rural area. There aren't a lot of healthcare providers. We've had hospitals close in the area. We have a very high infant mortality rate, maternal mortality rate, and a very high accident mortality rate because of the lack of healthcare services and emergency services to take care of people in those emergencies. Nobody should die for lack of healthcare availability, and nobody should have to drive multiple hours to get basic care. So one example of that is that we have several counties in the district that don't have an OBGYN anywhere in the county. And so folks are having to drive pretty long distances just to get their basic prenatal care. And they don't assume that they will have a doctor present when they deliver.
0: And that's just not acceptable in 2018. Tabitha is fighting an uphill battle in her election. Her district has elected a Democrat only once since 1965. It was the lack of a serious Democratic presence that pushed her towards running. I was not recruited. That would have been easier, but no. So it was funny.
3: I had just moved to Alabama in 2016 and was really shocked to see the state of civic discourse in Alabama and the state of the Democratic Party. Donald Trump's victory was a shock. And I think it's because I, like many others, had this sense That our country wouldn't want someone in leadership who behaved in a way that was disrespectful towards women, that was disrespectful toward minority groups, just the kind of tone of conversation, the immature insults. I assumed that people would be so turned off by that that there would be no way that Donald Trump could win. And I regret not having done more to have an impact on that election. But I was also really struck by the congressional race here in Alabama, that there wasn't a real race. So I immediately wanted to get involved. I'm usually involved in campaigns wherever I live. And I was surprised to find that it was really hard to get involved. I wanted to donate money and there wasn't a good way to donate to my congressional candidate, for example. There wasn't an option to volunteer, as far as I could tell, for my congressional candidate. So I was already frustrated, and then in 2016 saw that our current incumbent, Republican Martha Roby, won this seat with 49% of the votes against a Democrat who got 41% of the vote, and there was another 10% doing write-ins. That's a pretty close election, Given that it's Alabama and the Democrat wasn't letting me donate to his campaign or volunteer for it. So I really saw this need, this gap here, and very quickly felt like that's where I needed to focus my attention. Since I've been old enough to vote, I have been every year, I think, getting a little bit more involved. And how do you get more involved than, than volunteering as much as you can when we don't care? when we don't fight for every seat, when we don't insist on a dignified political conversation about issues, we get leaders who don't care that much about people. So I took some responsibility for that and said, I didn't do my part
0: and I'm not gonna let that happen again. Tabitha first tried to find a more serious democratic challenger by appealing to others. Eventually, She realized she was going to have to do it herself.
3: So I started to talk to people about how this seat is winnable and how much I wanted us to put forward real candidates and push to have a competitive district. And I said, you know, I realize it's going to take a million dollars. It's going to take a crew of organized volunteers knocking on doors. But those are all things that we can do. It's hard work, but it's not rocket science to raise a million dollars. And the same for organizing volunteers. So it started out as me wanting to be part of an effort to do it, and I assumed someone else would be on the ballot. And as time went by and we couldn't find someone to be on the ballot, I had said enough times, look, I could raise a million dollars, so it's not that hard. And eventually said, all right, fine, I'll do it myself. If you want it done right,
0: do it yourself. It's well reported that there's been an uptick in enthusiasm when it comes to people wanting to run as progressive candidates across the country. We spoke in a previous episode about the fact that 40,000 women reached out to Emily's List, for example. Up and down the ticket, people all over the country are running in places that hadn't been seen as in play. Amanda Littman saw the interest and decided she needed to do something. She'd previously worked for the Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton campaigns.
1: Pretty quickly after the election, they started hearing from friends from high school and college who reached out because I was the only person they knew that worked in professional politics. They said, hey, it seems like anyone can run for office these days. I want to run for city council. What do I do? And I didn't have anywhere to send them. There was no organization that existed at the time that if you were young and newly excited about politics, and wanted to do more than just vote or volunteer. You wanted to actually lead that would help you. So I got together with my co-founder, Ross Morales-Riquetto, and we wrote a plan. We built a website, and we talked and talked and talked and talked and talked. And on Inauguration Day, we launched Run for Something, thinking it'd be really small we thought maybe we'd get 100 people in the first year. Instead, in the first week, about 1,000 people signed up, and then since we've launched, nearly 19,000 people have raised their hands to tell us they want to run for office. So we work explicitly with young people, meaning under the age of 40, running for local office, meaning state legislature or below, for the first or second time. I think the thing that gets me really pumped is the number of people who are running in places where progressives haven't run before. That means that they're engaging voters who've never met a Democrat running for office before. That's a bad thing in the short term, but in the long term, that means we're building out this movement and having conversations with people in a meaningful way. So that gets me really pumped. They're planting the seeds, and they're actually engaging with voters who we need to have conversations with. We can't win if we're not running, and we have to give people a reason to show up and vote in the first place. In a lot of our districts, they are running in places where Democrats haven't fielded someone for decades, which means a Democrat in that area hasn't had a reason to show up and vote. If we don't get in the game, we have no chance of winning. So I'm really excited not just about the potential for what could happen in a wave election where we have no idea, but what could happen down the road.
0: While the odds may be against Tabitha in her district, it wouldn't be the first surprising Democratic win in her state in the Trump era.
2: Breaking news, the Democrat, Doug Jones, defeats Roy Moore in the deep red state of Alabama. And guys, make no mistake about it. May have been in the state of Alabama. This is gonna play out all across the country for a very The
0: campaign against Roy Moore was one of a series of events that have pushed progressives to the polls. Here's Emily Kane, the executive director of Emily's List. This doesn't operate in isolation, right? We had Donald Trump win. We had Hillary Clinton lose. We had bad things happen in the Congress. Bad things happen in state houses. The Women's March. We have Me Too and Time's Up. We have Parkland. We're dealing with Alabama. We're dealing with hurricanes. We're dealing with Kavanaugh. We're dealing with daily tweets from the president. And thankfully, women of America are saying, put me in. Let me at it. Let me help you with that problem. Let's get it done. And one of the best ways they can do that is run for office. Tabitha was already in the midst of her campaign when the Doug Jones-Roy Moore race began. So I started running in
3: October before we had a Democratic candidate for that Senate seat. So I was running throughout the time that we were having our primary. And I was involved. I was helping with Doug Jones' phone banks and getting folks involved. And then on December 12th, I had very low expectations, I think. I was both insanely hopeful and really unwilling to feel the kind of devastation that I felt the previous November. So when Doug Jones won, it shocked me in the other way. I had not let myself hope. I found myself unprepared for the reality of an Alabama that is capable of getting itself organized and together. Now I was already really excited about the grassroots organizing that I had seen. I felt like this is step one. If we keep growing our grassroots organizations and building these partnerships and coalitions to get out the democratic vote, eventually we'll win. But I saw it as a longer term project. So the fact that we won right then and there, it accelerated my hope and really made me think that perhaps we can actually do this. Perhaps we can start flipping seats sooner than later. just feels like a perfect storm lately. So many people have come to realize that unless we stand up for ourselves, we will be mistreated. We have to fight for ourselves. And the arc of the moral universe may be long, and it may bend towards justice, but it's not going to bend fast enough. If we don't stretch our arms up and grab it and start pulling, we just can't afford to hope and pray that
0: the arc will curve on its own. For people who are seeking change in policies, Tabitha says it's going to take change in leadership. I think it's less about
3: gender and more about the kinds of people who are able to run, the diversity of experiences and perspectives. The incumbent is a woman But she is a woman whose family is political, who's always had wealth and privilege. In that sense, she's very much part of the old boys club, the good old boys system of families we know. I bring something very different. I'm not wealthy. My family has no political connections. We had to go on the health exchange when I quit my job because my husband doesn't get insurance through his employer. And we have a kid who's on Medicaid. Because he's adopted, he's on Medicaid. And so I know what healthcare looks like through Medicaid and the challenges of that. I think anyone who's struggled knows something about how we we problem solve in the face of adversity and how compromise is part of life. Making alliances to help one another out is a key part of survival. And I think that sense of, I can't do this alone is the kind of attitude that we need to have in Congress. We need to be recognizing on both sides of the aisle that we're gonna have to do this
0: together if it's gonna get done. Part of working together towards compromise is really understanding what the other side wants. Tabitha says her experience as a foster parent shaped the way she finds empathy for other perspectives. It's hard to even imagine me running
3: before I was a foster parent. I learned so much from that experience Because when you're a foster parent, you've got kids who are screaming and yelling at you and telling you that they hate you and they want nothing to do with you and breaking things and putting holes through walls. But the underlying emotion is that they're scared. And so I had to learn as a foster parent how to not react to the words and the actions and to instead respond to the underlying fears and anxieties that that kid was acting out of. And I think that skill has changed my life. So now when I hear people make inflammatory political statements, I don't hear their vitriol or I try to hear past their vitriol and hear the underlying anxiety and fears that are driving those kinds of statements and respond to those underlying fears rather than responding to their inflammatory remarks. And that has made all the difference for me in terms of my ability to have compassion and to relate to and listen to
0: people whose views are so different than my own. Tabitha and her husband fostered their first child in 2014. When the child was unable to return to his biological family, Tabitha and her husband adopted him. She says missing out on home life is the biggest burden of campaigning. Well, I
3: think the hardest part when running particularly as a mom, is that you miss time at home. I love the traditions that I have with my son. You know, our bedtime routine is sacred. I miss it more days a week than I would like to. So it's a sacrifice that I'm making, but it's also a sacrifice that my family is making. And it's always hard to know that you've chosen a sacrifice for someone else. I hope that he looks back on these months or years and feels like it was a worthwhile sacrifice. Tabitha's hopeful that
0: real change is coming.
3: It's exciting. I feel like for decades, I guess, we've been talking about, like, how do you change Congress? Congress has become less and less popular, less and less functional, less and less effective. I feel like what we've been saying again and again is that we need a big change. We can't simply put a couple new people in office. Like, we're going to need a wave of new fresh blood, new faces, new perspectives, and new diversity of perspectives and life experiences, that's the only way we're going to save Congress from this tailspin that it's been in. And that seemed like a impossible lift before. But this year, I think we're seeing it. If we're successful,
0: Congress will look significantly different after this midterm election. Still. She doesn't have an easy race. Tabitha is running against an incumbent in a strongly conservative area. And she says she's also faced criticism from the left.
3: You know, I think one thing that's been hard is that there are some Democrats who have been reticent to support me because they want somebody who is
0: more forceful
3: in critiquing the current administration
0: It's clear that no candidate can win without the support of many others behind her.
3: I am the most energized and the most exhausted I've ever been. It's a very exciting time. There's so much going on, and it feels like momentum is building. I'm also totally exhausted, not sleeping enough, and regularly overwhelmed by the task that I've taken on, as I should be. It's a big task. I feel like appropriately humbled by this experience, realizing what an enormous thing it is and trying to just be clear all the time about the fact that I can't do it alone. So either we'll do this together or we won't, and we'll try again next time.
0: One of the challenges that Tabitha and many of the candidates that we've featured so far face is the fact that they're running against incumbents. Incumbents have a serious advantage, and they win most of the time. On Tuesday... We're going to speak with a candidate who brings that perspective. Sherry Bustos. I guess you don't need spelling on podcasts. I don't need spelling. (laughs) Um, My title is I'm a congresswoman from the 17th District of Illinois. More on that coming to you on Tuesday. Before we go, the election is less than two weeks away. If you haven't already done something to get involved, now is the time. We have the power to decide what happens on November 6th, so don't forget to go vote. And try to vote early. In some states like North Carolina, you can even register if you go to early voting, but you can't register on Election Day. Better be safe than sorry. Thank you for listening to this episode of Women Belong in the House. If you enjoyed it, tell your friends. If you didn't, I really do want to hear from you. This movement is all about starting conversations and learning from people with different perspectives. You can find me on Twitter at Jenny M. Kaplan follow us on Instagram at wmn.media or email me at pod at wondermedianetwork.com. Talk to you on Tuesday. Still listening? Here's a special treat from our friends at A Picture's Worth. What you're looking at is is a picture picture You're looking at
2: a picture of... I remember my own
1: worries and my own fears. And it captures a moment in my life when I was being really brave in a lot of other ways.
2: Think about it. The power of a single picture, a single scene captured from a single vantage point. It can stop us in our tracks, spark forgotten memories, unleash emotions, and even shape our perception of history. I'm Elisa Yancey, and I'm proud to welcome you to A Picture's Worth and our first project, Running for Our Future. In each episode, we'll tell the stories behind images supplied by a woman who is living in America's heartland and who, in this historic year filled with more female candidates than ever before, is also running for office. We've been working for more than a year on this project, learning and gathering stories about pictures women have had tucked away in photo albums, displayed on mantelpieces, and stored on their smartphones. The stories you'll hear may surprise you and inspire you. And even though they're non-political by design, These images and the narratives behind them help illuminate some of the many reasons women choose to run for office in the first place. So welcome to a fresh approach to add women's stories to the pages of history by sharing their pictures worth with you and with the world.